Hello and welcome to the EMJ podcast with me, your host, Dr. Jonathan Sakia. With me today is Professor Partha Carr, a consultant in diabetes and endocrinology at Portsmouth Hospital's National Health Service, or NHS Trust. Partha also has recently been appointed as the National Specialty Advisor in the field of diabetes for the NHS in England, working part-time to provide clinical leadership, advice, and support across NHS services. Partha was educated initially in Kolkata, India, obtaining his medical degree from the NRF Medical School and College there. Since then, he's had a number of important roles, including course director at the Royal College of General Practitioners, national innovation lead for diabetes in the NHS, and clinical lead for the medical workforce race equality standards. He's promoted many innovations, and unsurprisingly, his work has been recognized by a wealth of awards, including an OBE honor for his services to diabetes care in 2021. Congratulations to him for that. He's also been recognized as one of the most influential figures from the ethnic minority population across healthcare in the UK by the Healthcare Service Journal in 2020, 2021, and 2022. Partha tells me in the rare cases that he has some free time, he enjoys movies and comics, specifically Bollywood movies, which delighted me. I'm a huge fan of Indian cuisine, and in fact, last night cooked for some friends, and I'm a big fan of Bollywood movies. And anyone who's not dipped a toe into the genre, I encourage you to check out the original version of Amar, Akbar, and Anthony, which is a really important film given the current political climate in the world. Partha also loves anything Quentin Tarantino has made. And comic book-wise, he particularly likes the Dark Knight and Old Man Logan series. I'm not familiar with that. But more than anything, he appreciates the leadership lessons that you can gain from these. Professor Parthika, I'm really looking forward to our chat. Welcome to the EMJ podcast. Well, thank you very much for the invite. So before we discuss your career, I have to ask you about your interest in comic books and leadership um, uh, uh, lessons that you said you can learn. And interestingly, I saw that you've even created a type 1 diabetes comic. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's been a long-standing uh, love of mine. Comic books, I, I think it's not just the colourful pictures and everything. I think, for me, comic books have always provided good insights into leadership for me. Um, you know, whether and it's also one of those things, you know, whether it's Batman or Superman, everybody's trying to do the right thing. It's just have different styles of doing it. Or if you look at X-Men and how people who are ostracised from society, how they're accepted as part of society... So there's lots of hidden meanings in those comic books, and I've always enjoyed that side of things. So, And that translates a little bit into my work. And the, the comic book that you mentioned has been a lovely way of trying to cascade uh, that sort of information out to many people. I, I don't know if you're familiar, but there's, um, uh, there's a charity that I've been involved with over the years called Starbright that um, uh, finds ways of providing entertainment and edutainment for children dealing with chronic and, and nasty diseases that um, Steven Spielberg was involved in. Have you come across them at all? Absolutely. I've heard about them. And exactly one of the inspirations has been one of that sort of work. You know, how do you look at this condition, which is so unremitting and unforgiving? Yeah. Give it a different way of looking at things, so to speak. So, yeah, that, that's all there. So well, well, we'll come on to it and talk about that. But just, just in passing, I, I just had a, a marvellous flashback when I was interviewing um, young men and women who were looking to join our, our residency program 
um, one of the young men that I interviewed, you know, they always put things on their CV to try and appear grand and well-educated. And this kid put on that he was a fan of Mad Magazine, which I was a fan of. And what was awesome was that, you know, it revealed that A, he had a sense of humor, B, that he didn't take himself too seriously, and C, boy, did he know his topic, and we had a great old chat. So anyway, let's start at the beginning. You went to secondary school and medical school in Kolkata. Firstly, what inspired you to head down that career path, and what or who specifically inspired your interest in the particular medical discipline you're involved with? So I think it's a mixture of things, to be honest. I mean, I grew up in a in a family in Calcutta, which was of doctors. So I think there was a natural progression in those days. I think it's fair to say in a, in a city like Calcutta, uh, being a doctor was seen as a career move, which had a degree of stability around it. So there was a that sort of push, so to speak, from our parents. Uh, I think over the course of time, the thing that has driven me towards diabetes, there's two people I always mention. Uh, one is... Um, Dr. Zalin, Tony Zalin, and the other one was Dr. David Jenkins, people who worked in the Midlands in those days, and they, have been a, they were a huge influence in my lives about picking this as a specialty. Uh, it was more about being a part of the journey of lots of other people's chronic disease, and they were quite inspirational figures for me early on in my career, and I suspect they, they were the ones which moved me towards these, this particular specialty of diabetes. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's so often the case, isn't it, that... Um... Uh, that there are particular people that inspire us. And someone sent me an internet meme recently, which is, you know, can you name the, oh, who won the FA Cup on three particular years? Um, who starred in a given movie? Who was uh, the Minister of Health six years ago? And people struggle. Yes. But then ask people, who were the three people who most influenced your life? You yes. know, and those are the important things. So I mentioned in my introductions that you've been involved in innovations and you've helped expand the use of technology in type 1 diabetes management, advocating for uh, flash glucose monitoring in pregnancy and the use of online digital self-management platforms. Can you tell us about these technologies and assume that people don't know about them, which is with me always a safe assumption, and how they promise to, to, to revolutionize the care of patients living yeah, so the way I always look at it, I always say that, uh, you know, type 1 diabetes or any chronic disease, so to speak, hinges itself on three pillars, uh, self-management, peer support, and access to trained professionals. And health systems always and sort of push themselves towards, oh, we need more trained professionals. Um, the problem with that plan being that we don't have enough trained professionals. So I think anything that sort of helps better with your self-management is destined to make uh, lives better and outcomes better. So going back to that, if you think about diabetes, specifically type 1 diabetes, there's this process whereby you've had to prick your fingers to check your glucose. And it's a part of the innovation, the evolution of that science, because if you think back to the 70s, people were dipping urine to check their glucose levels. Then came this particular technique. And then finally came this one, which was about non-invasive way, so to speak, whereby you didn't have to prick your fingers and uh, you had devices which would pick up the numbers and be available on the phone. And uh, that's been a big focus, trying to bring that into people's lives, not just for the fact that it's an evolution of innovation, but also because it's, it's a good quality of life metric. Why would you prick your fingers if you can avoid it? So, and you have graphs, it gives you continuous readings, you can look at the readings, you can make your choices about your food and what you're doing. Uh, so it, it's been a big, uh, big expansion of that. And these technologies have been quite revolutionary 
in the sense and um, uh, it gives people better skills to self-manage their diabetes and we have now got long-term outcomes coming out showing that it's uh, it's delivered what it said on the tin the more we have expanded it into people's lives so i think the easiest way i can describe it to people is it's um it's the easier way of checking your glucose compared to what it used to be uh, and that's where things are moving towards yeah years ago partha i was at a meeting in the united states and um, it was a sort of a general medical CME type thing. And one of the speakers, interestingly, was a young woman who was an investment banker mm-hmm. and she was living with diabetes. And she gave a presentation on basically being a citizen scientist and how she had taken ownership of her disease mm-hmm. because she understood she was clearly a very, very uh, well-educated and insightful uh, uh, woman that she talked a lot about the value of tight glycemic control on her long-term prospects as a human being and what it would mean for her, for the healthcare system that looked after her and for society as a whole. But boy, getting people to take ownership with things like this, is it, is it straightforward or? No, I think, you know, it's sort of linked a little bit with what your other circumstances in life is, right? I, I have got this saying whereby I say, uh, and, and I say this quite regularly, which is it's not that easy to think about technology when you're struggling to put food on the table. Yeah. And I think that has a little bit of bearing as to how much people can take charge of their lives. So deprivation has its say in these matters. And, you know, it, with a degree of privilege, well, I suppose we could all sort of try and do better. But yes, I think we are trying to edge towards that, whereby people are more in charge of their own condition and, have, and these tools sort of help you along the way. So it's possible. But with the caveat that uh, the other circumstances in life do have a say as to how much you can be in charge of your own life. You know, I I was told off recently for describing someone as an epileptic and said that's Mm. politically incorrect. It's a patient living with epilepsy. Because Mm -hmm. if you define someone as an epileptic, it's kind of like if I ask you to describe yourself, Parth, and you said, oh, I'm I'm, I'm a diabetologist, I'm an endocrinologist, I'm a doctor. I, it's apparent from my introduction that, you know, you have a very rich and textured background. Wouldn't it be nicer to describe ourselves as I'm a kind person, I'm a, I'm a curious person, I'm a this, I'm a that, the other. And if we label people, we somehow facilitate dependent behavior. Is that true about people living with diabetes? I think there's there's been a big movement recently where people have pushed for the words people living with diabetes rather than diabetic. I think there's there's a mixed response from the people themselves, which is quite interesting to see because a lot of people say, well, it's part of my identity and I don't want to be given another label. That's that's who I am. And while other people are very very keen that they are they are named as person living with diabetes or as may be the case. But there is that, as ever, these things are always on a spectrum. And I think we always, in a health system, make a mistake of trying to go one way or another. Uh, my personal view is ask them what they would like to be introduced as, and we'll go with that. So I'm very comfortable, whatever you'd like to be called. So uh, in a similar vein, Apartha, you recently led a research team collecting real-world data on hybrid closed-loop systems. And from my understanding, hybrid closed-loop systems are now a possibility for around 150,000 people with type 1 diabetes in the UK. Can you firstly explain how this research unfolded and how the availability of hybrid closed loop management systems on the NHS will improve the lives of patients? And frankly, I have to hold my hands up 
um, I didn't know what the term even meant. So <laughs> until I until I read up in preparation for chatting with you. So can you first of all define it and then then expand yeah. the answer part? Absolutely, absolutely. So I think the way I always is describe it, if you're living with type 1 diabetes, you've got three basic things that you have to do. You prick your finger, you look at a number, then you think about what to do with the number, and uh, then you give yourself some insulin if it's high. And what we what is happening over the course of time, that pricking our finger has become automated. We talked about the continuous glucose monitors or Libra, etc. And uh, the delivery of the insulin in the past has been done by insulin pumps. So what hybrid closed loops is all about is actually those two talking to each other and that mental mathematics that that you have to do to, well, how much insulin should I give, et cetera, is done by an algorithm. That's the quirky bit about it. That's the Star Trek bit about it. So you simply have a system which picks up your glucose level by the sensor. It gets transmitted to the insulin pump and then it does the mental mathematics and gives you the insulin required. It's called a hybrid. It's, uh, the word hybrid is there because it's still not fully automated. You still have to do some work. You have to put in how much carbohydrates you're having. But what it's doing is automating, I would say, about 60 to 70% of the work that you have to do uh, if you've got type 1 diabetes. Uh, the best way I can describe it is the best thing that science can provide at this moment beyond a cure. So that's what hybrid closed loops is all about. It's exciting for a lot of people. And to your question... Uh, we did a real-world data evaluation whereby we collected data all across the country, nearly 900 patients across 35 hospitals. And it was more about collecting data to see whether it worked. We knew the data from the you know, randomized controlled trials, but we wanted to see how it worked in the real-world setting and collected evidence, collected experiences, feedback from parents, so people living with type 1 diabetes, then went back to NICE, which is our obviously our national body which looks at cost-effectiveness. and uh, here we are. So that they have given us the green light to roll it out to a significant amount of people uh, with type 1 diabetes. Um, in fact, it's the widest access globally at the present moment. So we just about embark on that journey to get it into people's lives. But that's what the, uh, the pilot study was about, just to see what people felt, how did they respond to it, were there any worries that we need to be aware of, and uh, that's where we are. So that's in a nutshell as to what we did in 2022, 2023, and that's where we are with that. Um, and what could the implications be for the National Health Service and then more broadly, globally, in oh, terms yeah. of uh, impact on health systems? And of course, NICE talks about cost. We yeah. have to be conscious of cost nowadays. We can't Absolutely. afford to just keep spending money. What, yeah. what, what are the implications? So the implications are very wide. It's prevention at the you know finest cutting edge you can think because if we use closed loops the way it's designed to work and uh, it brings down HbA1c or diabetes control to the best levels possible, you are eliminating a huge amount of complications from uh, people living with this condition. So you're talking about improving outcomes with kidneys, with uh, eyes, feet, all of that, which actually costs the system a lot. So the implication across the system is huge in the NHS. On a global basis, uh, of course, as we are embarking on this uh, path and it's very, very wide access, uh, a lot of countries are looking at it and I think this will have a cascading effect and it's a matter of also pride for us that the NHS is leading on something after you know years of uh, struggling with dealing with everything uh, that's thrown at us. So that's a proud moment as well. Um, so I would say that it's a very exciting part of type 1 diabetes care and uh, as I said, you know, best thing that science can provide beyond a cure. So if you have type 1 diabetes, this is what you'd want, I suspect. So let's see how it all rolls. But yeah, I think, and I think that's the exciting part of it all. 
Fantastic. So you were a pioneer of the Super 6 diabetes model aiming to integrate disease management across primary and secondary care. Can you explain to our listeners, please, how you identified the need for integrated management, what you pioneered, and then how you hope to see this delivered? Oh, now we're going back in time a little bit. So that was, this is around 2011, 2012, and a very, very simple philosophy. There's a bit of redefining what specialists uh, stood for. Uh, so far, as we were concerned, we said that diabetes specialists had only five or six roles to do. Thereby came the name of Super Six. So it was more about doing high-end stuff and then using your specialist knowledge to help our GP colleagues, uh, whether it's phone calls, visits to GP surgery. So doing a lot of the preventative work, but mostly in primary care, I'm doing a lot of the high-end stuff in the hospitals, like delivery of technology. So those were some of the issues that we had. Uh, we started that off the journey in, as I said, 2011, 2012. So it's been 10, 11 years since then. We have been delivered it across the whole system in Hampshire, which is where I work. And uh, it sort of uh, works. Our primary care colleagues are quite happy with that plan. And uh, that's what we did. So as I said, it, in simple words to put it, it was about redefining what specialists did in a hospital. And... Uh, the fundamental being that it's the same team inside and outside. So the same team which helps primary care is the one that works in a hospital. So that, that's just been the principle of it. And it's uh, worked reasonably well. And uh, we've had so far a good outcome. So we're quite happy with it. Yeah, because our, our profession does have a habit of being somewhat inertia bound and having resistance to change. But change has to be movement towards something better, not just necessarily something new. But it sounds like that clearly with the, the benefit of hindsight, it looks like this actually is making um, a profound and positive impact. Um, you're very active across social media. You write blogs on all things diabetes. How important do you think it is for healthcare professionals to use their platform to educate both their peers and their patients, in your opinion? And... This next part of my question is driven by a recent personal experience. I wrote something about vaccinations and I received a fairly vitriolic series of emails that were really driven by pseudoscience that's um, out there um, and, you know, all sorts of cons nutty conspiracy theories. So if there's an era where social media is used for so much that's bad and it can become a, a negative echo chamber. How do you ensure that the right messages get across? What's your trick or trick? So I think the first part of your question, I generally believe that healthcare professionals should use the platform because I think it's the, as you said, to connected to the second part of the question, it's the, it's the light and the dark side of any sort of sphere you can think about. Now, I fundamentally believe that my work on social media has been a driving factor behind some of the success because you engage with those living with type 1 diabetes in my case or the other work that I do, for example, tackling racism and stuff like that. But you're listening to people. And I think people can appreciate the fact that as a national leader, you're coming out, you want to talk to people. I think there's also a misunderstanding of how people view their leaders because a lot of leaders, I would say, are afraid of what people would think. My experience over the last seven, eight years has been people are very forgiving that if you can't achieve something, as long as you are honest and you turn around and say, look, not everything is possible, but I'm trying my best. And people are really appreciative of that. So education along those things, peers need to, you, you are trying to do that sort of work. 
As regards the negativity, I think I'm unfortunately that's just a the way the world has turned to. So, you know, echo social social media has become a lightning rod of all these people coming into one place. You know, it's quite easy to sit behind a computer with an anonymous account and just say something. But I think we need to sort of learn as well to sort of block that out. It's a bit like, as I say, going to a pub and somebody's being abusive. What do you do, right? You, you move away from that. So I, I have got a way of dealing with that. I use my mute button or block button liberally. People can't engage with polite. I say to everybody, I'm very happy to engage and talk about data and debate. Uh, but if you become abusive, then that's the end of that conversation. So you, you're out of my sphere, so to speak. So, and, uh, and the final bit I would say is consistency. I've got some messages which I put out consistently. That's quite important. And if you are wrong in something, come out and say you got it wrong. Uh, so the, some principles works quite well, but yeah, appreciably, it's a double-edged sword. And that's sort of, uh, but it's, it's a medium of communication, you see. And I think we need to just use it to the best we can. Yeah, I think you're you're absolutely right that uh, one can disagree, but just please don't be disagreeable. Um, that you know, positive debate, and and you know, I'd like to talk a little bit about the the racism issue because I'm a very keen football supporter, and I'm I am baffled by this, and it seems to be getting worse, not better. Um, and trying to have a, a sensible conversation with people about it. You know, you can't ban people because that's, you know, that's a movement towards, you know, a fascistic approach. We've got to engage with people. But how do we have this conversation? I mean, you and I are part of, I think, the noblest profession on the planet. And it is a multicultural uh, profession, certainly in the United Kingdom. And I think it's richer for that. Yeah. But how do we, you know, how, how do you not engage with someone because if we don't engage with them, their voices just get louder and louder. One needs to turn it from a negative echo chamber. One needs to t- tear these walls down. How do yeah. you deal with the racial? You know, I've already said you're from the from uh, from from India. Um, how how do you deal with it? So I, I, I mean, see, I think I've got a philosophy towards it that I, I don't believe that the vast majority of people are racist. I, I don't believe it because I I think if that was the case. Somebody like me wouldn't be in a position that I am. I guess you'd have to battle and struggle and stuff, you know. And it's a bit like, just like, let's take another protected characteristic. You talk about sexism, right? There'll be groups of people in this life who are your ally, who are always looking for a bit more evidence that this actually exists. They don't believe it because their friends are all okay or, you know, the usual line. I have never seen it, so it never happened. So I think that's the bigger group of people that are keen on tackling by saying, look, this is the evidence. This is where we are. Listen to this. And a lot of people do turn around. But there will always be a group of people who genuinely believe that they are superior, whether they're a man or whether they come from a particular race, etc. I think after a point of time, you have to move on because you can't change their views by you can debate to a certain extent. After that, it goes into territories, but it becomes much more sort of raw or on the edges. And you have to sort of, you know, for your own sanity, move on. But I think the vast majority of people are also cognizant of the fact that we are a multicultural world nowadays. And that's how it is. So I'm quite relaxed about in the in the conversations i have i'll do my challenges and uh, we go accordingly along those lines so it's what it is but it's fine it's part of life and we move on yeah i would encourage anyone who hasn't seen it there's a documentary called that peter crouch film all about the football of peter crouch and anyone who wonders what it must be like to be a public figure and to be abused on a, a regular basis 
It's mm. actually a very, very telling and very good piece of documentary filmmaking. And it's germane, whether you're a doctor or, or whatever field of, of, of study you work with. So staying on the social media sort of thing, I, I watched a video of a chat you had with um, uh, a gentleman, uh, an actor who uh, lives with diabetes, James Norton, I always liked him, uh, about living with his condition. And I previously worked with a number of prominent people like him to raise awareness of various health issues. And I found it to be so gratifying because, you know, because people are actors or musicians or politicians, people tend to look up to them and listen to them. So good on you for doing that. So first of all, do you believe that there's a lack of awareness about diabetes in the general population? And secondly, do you think that some folks living with diabetes do not take it seriously enough? Norton commented, I believe, he said he was diagnosed, I think it was at 22, and that he felt invincible. How do you address those issues? So I think, you know, we, let's take the example of James, who over the course of time has become a good friend of mine. And uh, it was fascinating to see and listen to him as well as then further have conversations because he has then now turned out to become a fabulous ambassador where he comes out and talks about his challenges, which is what you need to do. So we are a society which does respond to celebrity status. And James has obviously done the Happy Valley and all that and talked to be the next James Bond and all that sort of stuff. So he's got the degree of celebrity status around him, which is important because you want them to come out and say it's not really a bed of roses and these are the challenges. So I do this uh, do this uh, program every year apart from the pandemic time, which is called CAD, which is talking about diabetes, whereby we have a mixture of people coming around and talking about their lives and the challenges with it. So I think there is, as you say, some people want to ignore it because it just just is consuming their life and they don't want to know about it. But it's also our job, I think, as healthcare professionals to raise the awareness, use celebrities where possible, and as much use, again, going back to your last question, social media and other forums to raise these issues. So I think I see it as part of my role, I would say, to do that. And uh, having people like James Norton as your ally or um, Ed Gamble, who's a comedian and has got type 1 diabetes, got Theresa May, who's come around and spoke. So all of this does help. And uh, I would encourage other people to sort of listen to them and step up as well. Yeah. In the United States, I did some work with a politician by the name of Bob Dole. Some people may, may not know of him. He was a wonderful man um, and became a very good friend. And he had lost his father to a ruptured aortic aneurysm and he was diagnosed. And I had the privilege of getting to know Bob well. And he did a lot of public relations work on this. And I called him one day to say that we'd received a letter from a lady who said she was watching the morning show. And she said, my goodness, those are the symptoms my husband's having. He's been seeing a back doctor who said there's nothing wrong with his back. And in fact, this guy was living with a six centimeter abdominal aneurysm. And, you know, by seeing Bob Dole on television, his life was saved. And Bob was almost in tears about it. It was it was wonderful. So good on you for doing that. Um, I want to have an offline chat because I know a few people in that world who I'm sure would love to help you. So um, I've heard it said that the new classes of drugs like semi semaglutide, that they're game changers for diabetes. And I saw a financial analyst um, talk about in typical hyperbolic Wall Street fashion. He said that the insulin manufacturers would go the way of the dodo. Give us your thoughts on this. 
Well, there's a degree of irony in that statement because insulin manufacturers are the ones who've got those drugs. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> I'm not quite sure they will go the way of the dodo. They, they might uh, have less of the production in that. And I think you are probably already seeing early signs of that. Because if it's not been picked up in the United States, all the insulin manufacturing companies, specifically Novo Nordisk, Eli Lilly, Sanofi, have reduced their prices for the insulin. And that's been a big bone of contention in the United States for years. And some of it is probably because, uh, apart from the political pressure, etc., is because they've all got medications in the pipeline or in production, which are the drugs you mentioned, which are big game changers, not just for type 2 diabetes, but also for obesity. So I suspect a lot of the focus is going there. And uh, it is going to be a game changer for type 2 diabetes and obesity because some of the data is quite simply phenomenal. The big question is what is happening now, is whether that's a marker of what's to come. Because in lots of places, especially in the UK, we have literally run out of this particular class of drug because it's been picked up on the private market. And uh, thereby, health systems are being unable to find it. So whether the companies keep up with production is the big question. So will insulin manufacturers go the way of the dodo? No, because they are the same companies. But will they focus their priorities on these particular products? 100%. No question about it, because that's where the profits will lie and shareholders will respond to that accordingly. Yeah, I've seen a a lot of stuff about... uh... Um, people with money who who want to lose a little bit of weight, who are mm-hmm. who are seeking uh, seeking these drugs. So, tell us you, you you told us about many many hopeful and wonderful things that are happening. What are some of the the main challenges that patients with diabetes still face today, and um, what other innovations are, are are on the horizon that excite stem cells, gene therapy, what? So I think what I would say is that the challenges, uh, let's start with that. Uh, I think the big things that they face, the two big things that they face, one is the stigma associated with the condition, people's view about how they see diabetes and being judgmental. And that's one of the things we talked about. Social media is a very good example of that, where people are very judgmental about their approach towards it. And you see that a lot in the debates about diets, you know. So that's one. And the other one is access uh, to the technology, access to the medication, which depending on which country you're in, the funding system you are, uh, you have, uh, it, it is variable. And finally, I would say access to trained professionals. So there's not a whole lot of people around anyway as professionals. Then finding trained professionals is a challenge. So I think those are the three main challenges people have. As regards innovations, I think stem cells, definitely very exciting. I think in the world of where I inhabit, uh, the world which I inhabit, I would say um, you see the immunotherapies coming up, which was talking about reversing or re- putting type 1 diabetes development uh, at hold. You're talking about things which might start producing insulin cells like stem cells. I think those are the two or three things that will come up quite sharply over the next few years, I would say. All right. Well, as we um, um, trundle towards the end, a a question that I like to ask all my guests, if you met a genie and were granted three wishes to improve matters in your areas of expertise, what might those wishes be? Well, that's a fantastic question. I think I would say to the genie, first of all, uh, I would like a 
uh, system, I would like something whereby funding doesn't become an issue for people to get access. That would be the main thing, number one, uh, access to technology, access to whatever. The second thing I would say is prejudice, because we all as healthcare professionals have prejudice, which drives a lot of the outcomes as well. And that's about whatever your protected characteristics. And I think that's what I would like to eliminate. So the genie can do that. We would have improved not just diabetes care, but probably society as well. And the third one, I probably would say, well, getting rid of it altogether. That would be brilliant, wouldn't it? So if the genie has, was all powerful, if you, if you could, uh, you know, like Thanos from uh, Marvel movies, if he can flick a finger and get rid of diabetes full stop, I'm very happy to be out of a job and do something else. Uh, that would probably be the best of them all. I, I love it. I love how you brought it back to the beginning. That was masterful. Um, unfortunately, that's all we have time for in today's episode. And I'd like to thank you, Professor Partha Carr, for taking the time to share with us your insights for everything you for do, you're doing for diabetes care in the UK, across the globe, and all patients, including some of my friends who, who, who live with this disease. And thanks for being such a fascinating bloke. Oh, thank you so much for asking. Have absolute pleasure. So, folks, please subscribe so that you never miss an episode. Check out the archives. Tell your friends and colleagues about us and like us on social media. Please join us next week for another fascinating episode of the EMJ podcast. And until then, I'm Dr. Jonathan Sakia. I thank you for listening. Please stay safe, stay well, stay curious. Bye for now. <laughs>